All right, so that's going to be our, our text for the next few minutes, Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel 37. This is one of the five big prophetic books in the Old Testament. If you don't know where Ezekiel is, it's uh, in the last third of the Old Testament. It's one of the five, well, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel. Those five, we call them the usually call the five major prophets because they're big, they're, they're long books, and we're right near the end of Ezekiel. So I hope you'll join us there while we spend a little bit of time reflecting on this, uh, this pretty neat text in the book of Ezekiel. I'm glad you're here today. hope you're having a good weekend. We appreciate your presence, of course, and it's always good to be with God's people here. Let me set the stage for... Ezekiel 37. To give you an idea as to what's going on when Ezekiel prophesied what he prophesied in this book, specifically this, this part of the book, the, this is, things are bad, okay? Things are really, really bad. And that's why you've got this image, this very visual image that God takes Ezekiel to this place. You've got these dry bones there. That is meant to communicate a hopeless desperate, miserable situation. And that's the situation where Israel was, or Judah was. This is during a time when Judah had been taken away into captivity. If you heard of the Old Testament, the, the exile or the, or the Babylonian captivity, if you've used these expressions or heard these expressions before, that's where we are in the book of Ezekiel. Okay, so, so they were taken captive in like around 600 B.C. There were a couple of times where they, they carried a bunch of them away. Now, at this time in, in the world, you have a just incredibly powerful nation of Babylon. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar, you've heard of this ruler. And Babylon was, was extremely powerful. And they were cruel and they were mean and they treated people poorly. You had Assyria before them and then you had Babylon. And this is who's in power now, so it's a bad deal. They went up to Jerusalem and they destroyed everything there. They destroyed the temple. They tore down the walls. They took the. They killed a lot of people, and they took some of the the young, uh, promising men down to Babylon. They took a lot of other people down to Babylon, and so things were desperate. I mean, if you didn't have a wall and you didn't have a temple and you didn't have a people, you didn't have a geographical area that was yours. You, as a as a nation state, as a as a people group, you're probably not going to make it. So they're down in Babylon. All right, so. If you think about where modern-day Iraq is, Tigris and Euphrates, you know, the Babylonian Empire had its center there, but it had expanded and it had gone to a lot of part, lot parts of the world, big part of the world. And so that's where Judah is right now. And they were, as you might expect, they were, they were pretty discouraged. I mean, they, they, they questioned God, like, why are you letting this happen to us and all this? Now, they had had a lot of warnings about this because God had sent them preacher after preacher after preacher telling them, look, if you don't start honoring the covenant, I made a covenant with you, and, and here are the requirements of the covenant. And if you don't start honoring those requirements, I'm, I'm going to make something bad happen to you. I'm going to take you away into captivity. Well, preacher after preacher, they rejected. Lesson after lesson, sermon after sermon, they rejected. They kept on doing it. God said, finally, you know, this is going to happen in this generation. You're going to go away. You're going to go away for a long time. And so they didn't listen. They didn't straighten up. And as a result of that, God sent Nebuchadnezzar there. And Nebuchadnezzar destroyed everything and took them, took them into captivity. All right, so that's where we are, historically speaking. That's important for this because, you know, one of the rules of Bible study, as you know if you've uh, 
been around for a while, you know, one of the rules, the first rule of the Bible study is you need to figure out what it meant to the people who originally got it. Uh, you know, why did Ezekiel say this? He wasn't saying it to, to Hoover Church of Christ directly. I mean, he wasn't speaking to us directly. Now, all sorts of ways you can take it and, and, and uh, think about how it applies to us today. But one of the first things to think about is what did it mean to the people who got it? They heard Ezekiel preach this. They got this document, and uh, what did they think when they heard this? And this is, so that's what's going on with Ezekiel's people, the Valley of Dry Bones. Now look at the text with me again, just to make sure we are clear on how hopeless the situation was. If you can imagine what this would have been like, the hand of the Lord, that's an Ezekiel kind of expression to signify God's about to do something big in his life. The, the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the Spirit, this is a vision, the Spirit of the Lord, and set me down in the middle of the valley. And it was full of bones. And he led me around among them. Ezekiel was a priest, by the way. And you can imagine he couldn't touch a bone. It would have violated his requirements and he would have become unclean. He, he, he would have been very careful as he walked around this valley of bones. Anyway, he led, led me around among them. And behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley. And behold, they were very dry. So... Just stop there for a second. We'll eventually read some more of this, but I want you to just get an idea. If you can imagine going around on, in this valley and there are just these bones everywhere and you are not supposed to touch any of them, but you're, God's leading you around among them and you're stepping carefully and you see these bones. And of course, what this represents is some tragic situation, some battle perhaps. This army has been completely slaughtered. But it happened so long ago, if, I mean, people, you know, people in our own generation have been in, in places of warfare, and certainly in generations ago with the various battlefields our soldiers fought on, and the, and the devastation, the havoc that you see there. But, but you walk through a, a battlefield, and you see dead bodies, and that's one thing. In fact... This is, a, this is an ugly image, but I think Ezekiel is, is, supposed to, is, is trying to get us to think like this. It's an ugly image. You know that one thing they do after a, a battle is you, you send people out to walk amongst the dead, right? And one of the reasons you do that is to see if there's any sign of life. Because it could very well be that some of the soldiers who appear to be dead have not yet died. And so there may be someone out there that you can save. I think it's that kind of idea. You're walking the battlefield. You're looking at the corpses, as it were, to see if there's any sign of life. Is there any, you know, you get down and you look carefully. Is there any sign of breath? Can you feel a pulse? Any color in the body of, of someone lying on the ground? I mean, it's that kind of thing. So he's walking around, checking for life. That's, that's what we're supposed to read here, I think. And of course, it's very obvious from the very first step onto the battlefield here that there's no life because there's not any flesh. There's nothing but bones. And, and, and if, if we misunderstood that, it's not only bones, but it is dry bones. It is, it's, it's been so long since these bones had flesh on them that they have completely dried out. I mean, you get the image, right? The image is one of devastation and hopelessness. There's no life there. There's nothing. There's no way these bones are ever going to live again. I mean, from a human perspective. Now, you think about it. The scenario I set for you a second ago about, about uh, Judah, that's, that's the way it was. They were under the thumb of the most powerful nation in the world. 
Nobody rebelled against Babylon. Everybody had learned that. You don't get away from Babylon. You don't, you know, get enough soldiers to say, hey, King Nebuchadnezzar, we're going to go back home, and if you don't like it, you can go to battle against us. You don't, you don't do that sort of thing with Nebuchadnezzar. It doesn't go well. I mean, they were extremely powerful. And so the, this, you know, this analogy that God is communicating through Ezekiel is, you think about those bones. Any hope of life there? Is there, is there any way those bones are going to stand up and walk around? Anyway? No. It's, there's no hope. Same thing with Judah. So, so that's the idea. The valley of dry bones in verses 1 and 2. But look at this. So he asked the question, verse 3. Son of man, can these bones live? Now I think it's interesting how Ezekiel answers this question. Because he says, oh Lord God, oh, oh Lord God you, you know. Um, why didn't he answer like that? I think Ezekiel knows God a, a little bit. He knows God can do some amazing things. They, By the way, they didn't have a fully developed kind of uh, thinking about resurrection back then in the Old Testament. You and I think about resurrection. We think about, we celebrate it in communion a moment ago. We look forward to our own resurrection one of these days. And so we've got a lot more information about resurrection because of the New Testament. But in the Old Testament, they didn't have all that. They, they weren't as familiar. They didn't think about resurrection a whole lot because they had this idea, and you study this in the Old Testament, this, this kind of comes through again and again. When you died, you were dead. That was it. That was it for you. I'm not saying that was... They didn't have any kind of an inkling. They, they did maybe have an idea that something awaited beyond what they call Sheol, you know, the, the, the abode of the dead. Maybe they had some sort of idea, but it was very murky, very, you know, just kind of nebulous, this idea of any kind of resurrection. They, they, they dreaded the tomb because they didn't have a whole lot of hope that that was going to be anything after that. Now, they, they're going to get idea in the New Testament, but they didn't have much of an idea in the Old Testament. So... When Ezekiel answers this question, I think he's kind of like hedging a little bit. God says, Ezekiel, can these bones live? Well, from a human perspective, Ezekiel might have thought, uh, uh, no, no, they're dead. I mean, these, these bones are obviously dead. Not only are they dead, they've been dead. And not only have they been dead, there is no sign of anything that's going to bring them back to life. So from a human perspective. But he's, he thinks, I'm talking to God here. God can do amazing things. And so I think he kind of doesn't really answer the question. He says, oh, Lord God, uh, you know. And that's a way of saying, well, I don't, I don't think so, but I don't know how I'm supposed to answer this. I, th I think it's kind of interesting the way he answers. So God said, oh, yeah, by the way, there, I mentioned this, but make sure we get this. Judah had no hope in Babylon. No hope. No hope. No way they're getting out of there. You don't get out of Babylon. You don't go back to your homeland. It doesn't happen, okay? So there was no hope. That's the, that's the parallel. So the answer to that would be, for them, there's no, there's no way. So God says in verse 4, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. So Ezekiel is asked to preach to a dead audience. Now I've preached to some dead audiences before. None here, none here, by the way. But I have preached to some dead audiences before, but nothing like this. You know, by the way, since we're preaching on this text today, though, if you go to sleep, I might think you're dead. And I might come and pronounce over you, oh, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. So I might do that. But, but 
you know, you can imagine this. I mean, this, this scene is one of absolute devastation. And God says, go preach to these bones, Ezekiel. Preacher, preach. And here's the message. Oh, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Does that make any sense? From a human perspective, of course, it doesn't make any sense at all. These bones aren't listening. They haven't been listening in a long, long time. They're not going to hear the word of the Lord. But God says, prophesy over these bones. And this is what you're going to say to these bones. Verse 5, thus says the Lord God of the, to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and I will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Prophesy over these bones. Preach to these dead bones. And so Ezekiel did. Can you imagine this? He did it. You do what God says, right? Even if it doesn't make any sense. So I prophesied, verse 7, as I was commanded. I preached to these bones. And as I prophesied, imagine this, there was a sound and behold, a rattling. And the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked and behold, there were sinews on them. And flesh had come upon them and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. So initially, this is going to happen in two stages, but initially you just got these bones coming together and you got the sinews coming together and flesh is forming over the bones and now you got skin on them, but now they're just corpses. They're bones with flesh on them, but there's no life. It's just interesting how this happens. Then he said to me, Ezekiel says, prophesy to the breath, the ruach, which in the Old Testament is spirit or breath. It's, well, creation language. In the, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth and the darkness, and the, there was darkness over the face of the deep, and the spirit of God moved over the face of the water. You got creation, the ruach of God moved over the face of the waters, and God created he gave, he brought life into the world. That's Genesis 1 language. So he said, prophesy to the, the, the spirit, to the, to, the, to the, I think he's saying, prophesy to the breath. He's saying, preach to the spirit of God. Preach to the life-giving spirit of God. Talk to the spirit. And here's what you say to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. You see this? So talk to the Spirit, and ask the Spirit to come from the four winds and bring breath into these dead bodies. Because that's, we'll talk more about this in a minute, that's what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit breathes life into things that are dead. That's what he's always done. He brought life in Genesis 1. He brings life in Ezekiel 37. And he's still bringing life today. I'll go there in a second. But I, but I want you to just hear this, this language, this, the breath idea. We talk about the God-breathed Word of God. That just means it's got God's Spirit in it. It's got the breath of God in it. So preach to the Spirit. So verse 10, I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. So what you've got, what you've got at this point is 
I mean, it's just an incredible miracle in this vision that Ezekiel sees. God has, uh, you know, said, preach to the bones, and they start, you know, getting flesh on them and all that. And then he says, preach to the spirit, to the breath, and the spirit comes and brings life into these bodies. And you've got this exceedingly great army. So probably a battlefield, right? A battlefield where everybody had died, but now God has breathed life into the army. So I want you to read, we're going to read 11 through 14. So four more verses and we're going to think about, okay, so what? What does this mean to, to us? We're living 2,500 years later. So verse 11, then he said to me, O son of man, this is God giving the application to them. These bones are the whole house of Israel, Israel and Judah. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. And they were, by the way. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from the graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you and you shall live and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it, declares the Lord. So God says, Ezekiel, this is what this means. This is not about a valley of dry bones. This is about the valley in which God's people find themselves. This is about God's people in exile. They're hopeless. They're, they're helpless. They, they don't know what in the world they're going to do. What's gonna ha- how are we ever going to get back to our land? How are we ever going to be a people again? And God says, go preach to the people and tell them, I'm going to resurrect you and bring you back to life. If you know the rest of the story in the Old Testament, you know what happens? God deposes Babylon and replaces Babylon with Persia. Persia has a king named Cyrus. They have a king named Darius. And the Persian kings give edicts that send God's people back to Jerusalem. This is in the book of Nehemiah and also in the book of Ezra later on in the Old Testament. And they give edicts and they send Nehemiah back. They send Ezra back. They send Zerubbabel back. You know what they do? They rebuild the walls. They rebuild the temple. And the people of God come back to Jerusalem. They come back to Judah and they occupy their land once again. That's what this is talking about. A dead people in Babylon become a living people in Judea once again. That was the message that God's people heard when they heard this sermon. But we don't live in Babylon, do we? And we're not in exile. So what do you do with a lesson like this? Do you stop at this point and say, okay, well, it meant something a long time ago. Right? So that's pretty neat. 2,500 years ago, it meant something pretty neat. Let's go to, uh, go with me for a minute to the book of Colossians. Would you do that? Uh, Colossians, I want to go to the New Testament. Think about, think a little bit about how this, this story might relate to us. Because I, I see a principle here, and I want, to, I want to kind of explore that principle for a couple minutes. And the principle is, as we said already a time or two, is God's Spirit is a life-giving Spirit. Where God's Spirit goes, there is life. And that was true in Ezekiel 37. It was true in its application in Babylon. God's people were dead. God's Spirit entered the scene and they were made alive again and they were given their land back. You know, what happens... And I mentioned this earlier, but we we gathered around the table a minute ago. 
And what we celebrated there was an act of the Spirit of God. We commemorated the death of Jesus. We thought about the six hours on that Friday. And I appreciate John's words and prayers as well because we reflected on this idea. We don't, we don't merely commemorate the death of Christ in communion. We commemorate the death of Christ from the perspective of a post-Sunday from after Sunday. We commemorate the death of Christ that's informed by what happened Sunday because without Sunday, without the empty tomb, the death of Christ would have been merely another death. There were lots of people who were crucified. But when God sees death, God wants to bring life. And the single most important event ever is what happened that weekend when Jesus died on the cross and then Sunday morning, He was resurrected. And in Colossians 2, there's this new, really, there, there are lots of places like this. I want to go to, back to Ephesians in, in just a second. But in Colossians, Paul is talking about Jesus. He's talking about the, the deity of Christ. But he gives us an application here. Colossians 2, listen to this, verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. I want to go back one, two books to the book of Ephesians. And I want to read just something else. Paul is praying for the church at Ephesus. And he says to them, God is going to do some amazing things in you. And I am praying that God will... Uh, that God will give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of Him. That's Ephesians 1.17. That He will enlighten your hearts, verse 18. That, that He will help you to know what the hope of your calling is, verse 18. That He will help you to know the riches of your glorious inheritance, verse 18. That, that, that you'll be able to perceive the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe. That's verse 19. But here's where it's all grounded. I want you to see the connection here. According to the working of his great might, verse 20 of Ephesians 1, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. You see what Paul is doing here in Ezekiel 37. I don't, I'm not suggesting to you that Ezekiel 37 is talking about the resurrection of Christ. I'm only suggesting to you that the, what we see there is a principle of God is a life-giving God. He is a, a, God is a spirit who breathes life into dead things. And we see the culmination of that, the, the ultimate realization of that in the tomb of Jesus when God raised him from the grave. But then it's interesting to see how, how God uses that moment. It's, it's that, and the, the longer I read the New Testament, the more I realize this, this changes everything and it permeates everything that we do. Because what Paul does is he says that same power that raised him from the grave will raise you from your spiritual graves we won't stop there, but, but initially that's how he uses it. You see this? Uh, if, if you're not a Christian this morning, you may think, there's no hope for me. I'm in it too deep. I've been doing this too long. I've hurt too many people. I've broken too many promises. And if you only knew half the things I've done, you wouldn't have let me in here today. Maybe somebody's thinking that. I know people think that. You think, 
There's no hope for me. There's no hope. There's no hope for me. And you know what? From a human perspective, there is no hope. Because you can't change through your own power. You cannot live the life God created you to live through your own human efforts. So from a perspective of Judah in Babylon, there's no hope. From the perspective of you or me in our sins, there's no hope until God enters the scene. And the same power that raised Jesus from the grave is raising people from their graves today, spiritually speaking. God's still doing this. I've seen it happen too many times to deny its power. Haven't you? Some of you have. Maybe you haven't. But some of you have seen this. You've seen it working. You've seen the hand of God active in the lives of people who have, man, done awful things, haven't we all? They've done, we've, we've committed acts of rebellion and treason against our Creator. And we wonder, can these dry bones live? And God's answer is, God's answer is, prophesy to the breath, prophesy to the Spirit. And, and of course, I can't help but see New Testament connotations there of what the Holy Spirit does. I mean, it's, he's, he's mentioned in passages that talk about conversion, like Acts 2.38, which we often quote to talk about baptism and probably minimize the work of the Spirit there. Repent and be baptized. Turn away. Turn away from your past, whatever that means. But repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the breath. Same word gift of the Spirit, the Spirit of God. What does the Spirit of God do? He breathes life into things that are dead. And so when you, when you look at this principle throughout Scripture, this is what you've got. You've got God moving in desperate situations. And I think that's a pretty good description of who God is and what God does. God is a life-giving Spirit. But if, but if I may, let me extrapolate a little bit farther from that. And think about that principle as it might apply to other desperate situations. I think the primary way in which we see it is God's moving in people who are dead spirits. Oh, I forgot to mention Ephesians 2. I've got I to gotta mention this just, just quickly. Ephesians 2. Listen to this. Because this is, this is, it goes from Ephesians 1 where he says, the power of God and the resurrection of Christ, God, that same power is working in you. And then he goes to verse, verse 1 of chapter 2, which is where he spells it out. Listen to this. And you were dead. You were dead. You were in the valley of dry bones. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the, the prince of the power of the air, the spirits that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. In other words, you were Following Satan, this is what you were doing. This is, you were living a life of rebellion. You were dead. No hope, okay? No hope. You were in the valley of dry bones. Oh, there's so much there. Skip over some of it, though. Verse 4, but God. There it is. But God. But God, verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him. See, he, put, he brought those dry bones together and he put sinews on them and he put flesh on them and God's spirit breathed new life into those dead spiritual bodies. You see this? And that principle at work today, 
He's working in hearts. He's working in people. It may be, it may be that, I think there's a principle here, and I heard somebody talking about it this week. I listened to a sermon on Ezekiel 37, and the preacher in that, he was, he was using it to talk about missions, which I thought was an interesting application of it. Missions and evangelism. And, and it was, he, was, he was using this to think about how, you know, you look at somebody, and maybe you, you've got somebody in your family, son or daughter, sibling, parent, co-worker, good friend. And you don't see any spiritual signs of spiritual life. I mean, you, you see deadness. You see apathy, perhaps. You see no hint of any spiritual sensitivity. You know what I'm talking about? Maybe the attitude is, you know, there's no hope for him or her. There's no hope. And maybe you've even kind of been tempted to give up hope. Don't ever give up hope. That's one of the messages we might take away from this. And that is God still acting in human hearts today. And it could very well be that God will move in that person's heart, his or her heart, to bring about life, to breathe life into a dead heart. We shouldn't give up hope. The two things, and I got this from this fellow who was talking about this text, two things we might use from this when we're talking about missions or evangelism or thinking about people in your sphere of influence. You might want influence for Christ. We might draw from Ezekiel 37 is, one thing is, we talk to the bones about God and we talk to God about the dry bones. That's evangelism in a nutshell. We tell the dry bones, that's what Ezekiel did, just, just prophesy to him. It, Ezekiel, you don't have any power to raise them from the dead. And I think that's what Ezekiel was acknowledging. Can these dry bones live? And Ezekiel said, you know, Lord, I can't do anything about it. If anything happens, it's going to be you. God says, you prophesy to them. You speak to the bones. You speak to the dry bones about God. And then you speak. He says, now, now preach to the breath. You speak to, you speak to God about the dry bones. That's what evangelism is. We talk to people about God. And we talk to God about people. That's what, that's what we do. And that's all we can do. We can't do anything else. We sow the seed in hearts. We talk to God about the seed that we sowed. But if God's going to bring life, it's going to be God who does it. And so if you've got somebody in your sphere of influence that doesn't show any, any spiritual signs of life, what do you do? Talk to the person about God when you have an opportunity and talk to God about the person. And you never know when God might move and start putting sinew and flesh and he might breathe some life into those dead bones, those dead bodies, you know? So, so when you think about how, this, how we might see God's, God working in us, maybe... Maybe an application for us is in our own lives. Not just people outside of the faith, outside of Christ, but people inside of the body, in the body of Christ, but who are struggling. And maybe it's, maybe it's relationships that we see in our own lives that are, that are dead. Can, can God breathe new life into dead marriages? Can God breathe new life into relationships that are drying up? Can God restore relationships between moms and dads and their sons and daughters? Can He bring siblings together again? Can God take things that are dead and breathe new life into them? I'm not saying, I don't want to give everyone false hope that you just pray a prayer and God's just going to miraculously move tomorrow. But 
I don't want either for us to give up hope and to think that because something's dead now, it's always going to be dead. God's still moving. Talk to God about the things that are dead and talk to the things that are dead about God. And so in relationships and in our own struggles, our perhaps some struggle that we're having, some addiction, some problem with sin, some sort of issue, this Hebrews 12 calls it the sin that clings so closely, whatever that is for us. Does God breathe new life into things that seem completely dead? Can these dry bones live? Oh Lord God, you know. And God knows what God can do. And God still moves. I've mentioned a few. I hope you'll take the principle and, and God will help you take the principle because this is, God works through, through His Word. So maybe God will take this principle and whatever there's going on in your life where you, you think, man, this is, this is hopeless, this is desperate, I'm in a bad situation, I've done awful things, I've, I've got this addiction, I'm, I'm, my marriage is dead, my, this, my relationship with my kids, with my parents, with my siblings, with coworkers, with a, with a good, formerly a good friend. These things just seem hopeless, Lord, and, and maybe they are from a human perspective. Can these dry bones live? Oh, Lord God, you know. If you're not a Christian this morning, one of the reasons we're here is, is so that we might be able to share something like this with you. And this very much applies to all of us, regardless of where we are, but it certainly applies to people who are followers of Jesus. And maybe you're in the camp that I mentioned a moment ago. You think, man, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I, I've done some pretty bad things, and I, I, I'm a sinner if you've come to that point in your life, you're in a wonderful place because you've gotten over the hardest part, and that is acknowledging that you need something outside of yourself, and you can't fix all this stuff your, yourself. You're, you just can't do it on your own. Because once you realize that, you fall to your knees, and God breathes life into people. He still does that. You come to faith in Jesus Christ. You express that in baptism as you turn away from whatever your past involves, God breathes new life. You're resurrected from the grave, from the water, and you're resurrected from your spiritual grave, and God brings new life. All of this is looking ahead to an ultimate resurrection where God is going to breathe new life into all of his people at that final day. If you're not a Christian today, we urge you, confess your faith in Jesus Christ. God wants to breathe life where there's something that's dead. If you need to come to him today for the very first time, maybe you need to come back to him today. Uh, we urge you, we beg you, stand, let, let's sing, and I hope you'll come.